ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Now, as the clock ticked over to 2024, Indonesia lost its crown as the world's biggest Muslim nation. Uh, Pakistan now holds the title. But Islam is still central to the country's identity and in recent decades to its politics. So why was religion much less prominent in last week's national election? After all, the new president, Prabowo Subianto, has a history of courting the Islamists, but not this time. Professor Tim Lindsay runs the Centre for Indonesian Law, Islam and Society at Melbourne University. Uh, Tim, welcome. So what's the answer? What we have to remember is that before the previous election in 2019, two years before that in 2017, there had been an enormously polarising election for the position of the governor of Jakarta. The incumbent, known as Ahok, was a Chinese Christian. He had been targeted by Muslim groups on both uh, the double minority grounds of his ethnicity and his religion as a minority religion in Indonesia, Christianity. What resulted was huge demonstrations, somewhere between 700,000 and a million people in the streets of Jakarta demanding the execution of Ahok and so on. Mm. Ahok was tried for blasphemy, ultimately convicted, lost the gubernatorial election. Those events fed into the 2019 election, and Prabowo, one of the candidates running in that election, exploited that by riding that wave as the Islamist candidate. But after he that fell election, short. <laughs> well, after that, he certainly lost that election. Hmm. And after that election, President Jokowi, confirmed in his role as president for his second term, turned on the hardline Islamists who had been pushing these protests against Ahok and using them as a vehicle to assert real political influence and responding to the religious polarisation that emerged after that, his government began to crack down on hardline Islamist groups. Mm. And so we saw a new law being passed that allowed the government to ban uh, organisations without any need for a judicial process and use that to disband the Islamic Defenders Front, FPI, a notorious hardline vigilante Islamist group that played a key part in the protests of 2017 and the campaigning in 2019. It also banned Hizbut Tahrir Indonesia and started charging with various offences leaders of these sort of hardline groups. Yeah, this is fascinating because we've had a narrative for at least a decade and a half about the growing radicalisation of some forms of Islam in Indonesia. Are you saying that that is now on the wane? What happened was that conservative and radical Islamist groups, vigilante groups and the like, exploited the political situation in Indonesia particularly around 2017 and into 2019. There's no doubt that Muslims in Indonesia have become more conservative and more observant, more pious, if you like, but that is not the same thing as radical or militant. Mm. We have to bear in mind it's entirely possible to be conservative in your religious outlook without being militant at all. In fact, you may abhor militancy. Yeah. I think it's really important to distinguish between growing conservatism, issues of religious intolerance, and militancy or radicalism, because they're not the same things. Yeah. So what there is is this backdrop of increasing piety in Indonesia and that particular groups exploited that when political opportunities arose. And that ultimately led to 
deeply polarizing political activity based on this sort of Islamist intolerance, which became very significant in the political process in 2017 and 2019. But after that election in 2019, the government of uh, Jokowi, President Jokowi Dodo, began this crackdown. Yeah. And by the time we get to now, Islamist groups have been, many of the ones that played an important role in 2017 and 2019, have effectively been pushed back out of the political sphere, unable to mobilise in the way they did back then. Yeah. Where does uh, Prabowo Subianto, the new president, stand in relation to political Islam? Because as you say, he's flirted with it, but he doesn't have a very, uh, let us say, concrete or definite position on political Islam, does he? Prabowo is a highly pragmatic politician. He's a survivor. He's skilled at reinvention. He's an opportunist. He used those qualities back in 2019 to present himself as the Islamist candidate, unsuccessfully, of course. This was a little ironic because he's hardly the obvious candidate for that sort of a role. His mother was Christian. His brother is often described as a fundamentalist Christian. Prabowo himself has hardly got a record of religious piety, at least not in public. For him to be their candidate shows, first of all, his opportunism, but secondly, how much there is an actual lack of a credible mm. candidate for these sort of Muslim organisations. Now, yeah, can I just ask though, how widespread is the knowledge of Prabowo's family background, especially in Christianity? Well, I think it's quite widely known. It's not a secret, mm. but it didn't seem to stop him becoming the figurehead for these groups, yeah. riding that wave from 2017, mainly because there was no other alternative candidate for them to get behind. Mm. It was clear that President Joko Widodo would not take that sort of position, not least because Ahok, the former governor of Jakarta, who was eventually convicted after the tensions of 2017, had been the deputy governor under Joko Widodo before he became president when he was the governor of Jakarta himself. And Ahok, who was seen as very close to Jokowi, often called Jokowi's brain, that closeness meant that there was no possibility that Jokowi could become the Islamist candidate. In fact, the groups that were campaigning in 2017 and into 2019 had called for his overthrow. Mm. At one point, it marched on the palace. So given that Jokowi could not be their candidate, they had no one else to go to but Prabowo and he was a Muslim, and that was probably enough for those purposes. Yeah. What do you think Prabowo's interesting family history with religion, mother and brother are Christians? How do you think this might affect Prabowo's attitude to religious minorities, which are about 10% of the population? Yes, that's right. Muslims constitute about 87% of the population. Well, Prabowo's appearance as the leader of Islamist groups, uh, the channel for Muslim political aspirations in the 2019 election was can probably be seen in retrospect as an aberration, an act of opportunism. Historically, I think he lands much more in the secular nationalist camp who would be keen to emphasise the importance of pluralists and who would, like President Jokowi has done in the last term, crack down on hardliners and people trying to use Islamic identity as a political weapon. Given that Prabowo in this current election won mainly because he was actually supported by President Jokowi and is seen as a sort of Jokowi's chosen and endorsed candidate, 
it's very likely that he would be continuing Jokowi's policies, which would certainly not give much room for political Islam. Mm. So is Prabowo going to be faithful to that founding ideology of Pancasilla, which is this, as I understand it, interesting mix of religious pluralism and sort of political social democracy? Is he going to be a faithful guardian of that? Well, that's a very interesting question, Andrew, because what exactly Pancasilla means depends on who's in power. Pancasilla is, I think, the ultimate motherhood statement. It's the official Indonesian ideology, and it has you know, five components, of which the most important for our purposes is belief in the one and only God or belief in almighty God. Now, the Indonesian constitution does not contain the word Islam or any mention of Muslims anywhere in it. And that was deliberate because by the time Indonesia's founders met, one of the key issues was how to deal with a majority population of Muslims without antagonizing the minority groups who are majority in certain areas, mainly to the east of Indonesia. The fear being that if you privilege Islam, you would lose the Christian parts of Indonesia. And with the revolution pending at the time, the fear was that the Dutch colonial masters returning to reclaim Indonesia would exploit that. So there was much debate, but in the end, this first principle of the national ideology was introduced, which was intended to exclude political Islam and to give equal status to all the religions. That's clear enough, I suppose, but Panchasila has been reinterpreted by successive regimes to mean whatever the regime in power wanted it to mean. For example, without any change to the wording of Panchasila, it has been the state ideology when Indonesia was leaning towards Marxism under Sukarno, then again under Suharto when it was a right-wing US-supported dictatorship, and then again after 1998 when Indonesia became an emerging democracy. And each of those regimes and political systems had a different interpretation of the elements of Panchasila. That sort of inherent flexibility means that Panchasila means what you want it to mean. Under Prabowo, that principle of belief in Almighty God will likely be interpreted to support the notions of pluralism that marginalise political Islam in the way it has been, particularly in the last term of President Jokowi. Tim, even though you've spoken about the crackdown on radical Islam across Indonesia, how do we reconcile that with the situation in Aceh? Now, this is a province. uh, I know it's only one province, but it has Sharia law. Where does this fit into this project of a crackdown on radical Islam? Aceh is an exception in Indonesia. What happens in Aceh, in fact, has very little influence on wider politics in Indonesia. Aceh is the only province in Indonesia which is entitled to apply Islamic law or Sharia in its own right. In all other places, Sharia is not actually a source of law. Islamic norms may be adopted in laws, but Sharia itself is only a source of law in Aceh. And that's the result of the settlement to the long-running war in Aceh between Aceh secessionists and the Indonesian government, which was resolved after the the tsunami in um, 2005. Part of that settlement deal was to give Aceh autonomy and allow it to express this Islamic identity, which had played a part in fueling the secessionist movement. Although the secessionist movement was not actually Islamist in nature, it was part of the deal at the end. What that means is that 
the central government in Indonesia is very reluctant to become involved in the application or administration of Sharia in Aceh in any way. And that Aceh is treated as, as this unique sort of special case. One of the reasons they're willing to do that is that while Aceh is Islamically very conservative, it's sometimes described as a form of rural conservatism or, or backwards conservatism, which is a different thing to commitment to global Islamist militancy. In other words, Aceh is interested in Achenese mm. understandings of conservative Islam, not in the caliphate or Islamic State. And so from a Jakarta point of view, that's fine. Yeah, I've not been to Aceh. I've been to much of the rest of Indonesia. You've been to Aceh. What, what does it look like on the ground when you um, talk about the application of, of Sharia law there? Aceh looks very much like any other province in Indonesia. Obviously, there's a stronger public expression of Islamic identity. Obviously, there's a much stronger public expression of Islamic identity. But women wearing headscarves is common throughout archipelagic Southeast Asia. And there's nothing in particular that tells you that you are in a province that applies Sharia law at, at first glance. The institutions of Shariaization, religious police and so forth, the content of regional regulations that introduce Sharia law are often controversial. Some of them are repressive and there have been problems at times relating to human rights. But this is not an extreme case of Islamic Sharia being applied. It's a remote rural province that is very conservative in its interpretation of Islam and which is more preoccupied with its internal conflicts than it is with wider Indonesia. Mm. And this, I think, is reflected in the fact that in the national election that's just been held, all political parties taking part had to be national in nature, except in Aceh. Mm. Aceh was the only place that could run its own local political party. So Aceh is the, the special case, the exception in Indonesia as a result of the end of its, its conflict. And it is very conservative, but it is not a hotbed of militancy. Mm. Professor Tim Lindsay, Indonesia scholar at the University of Melbourne, uh, someone who spends a great deal of time in Indonesia. Tim, thank you for joining us on the program. Thanks, Andrew. Stream any ABC radio station live and on the go. Discover new podcasts, music and audiobooks, all free on the ABC Listen app.